This podcast discusses sensitive topics that may contain graphic depictions of violence, substance use, self-harm, explicit language, and other content that some listeners may find disturbing or triggering. Listener discretion is advised. He terrorized me, beat me, belittled me, shamed me, and I stayed for more. Welcome to the Survivor Story Podcast. You are invited to open your hearts and ears to the powerful stories of others. Here, you are no longer alone. You hear your experience, your strength, your hope in the words of others. Join us on this journey as we conquer our past, live in the present, and dream for our future. Together, we choose our story. Welcome everybody to the Survivor Story Podcast. I am your host Kevin Colbert and today is our very first story. How exciting. (laughs) This very first one is the story of Deb who is a very good friend of mine, has been a very impactful person in my life. Her story has so much nuance and wisdom, and when hearing her story and listening back to these, like it's like, Deb is going to be the perfect first episode. She's a great reminder of the journey of healing, of how experiences big or small are so impactful, and she really has encompassed a lot of forgiveness in her life. A lot of shifting and changing from things that maybe not served her to things that are serving her well-being. Excited that she's here, that she's speaking her story. So sit back, get cozy, and let's listen to Deb's story. When I was a child, a casual observer would probably have thought my family seemed fairly normal. Two parents, three kids, and a nice house in the suburbs. My two older sisters and I were always good girls, practiced at the art of smiling and appearing happy. We learned that from our mother. It was expected of us. My mother handed out imaginary mirrors to everyone she knew so they could reflect back to her who she was, who they saw based on material possessions, her lovely daughters, and a practice smile, became her identity. I was trained to find my identity in those reflections as well. I learned the outward focus instead of the inward focus. Even though I lived in the same house with her for 19 years, I did not know my mother, because I don't believe she knew herself. Who she presented to the world was a work of fiction. My mother was physically present, but not emotionally present, and I began to sense that at a young age. I took my mother's smile as a nonverbal lie. She was lying to me without words. I used to think she did this on purpose. I have since realized she was probably lying to herself as well. I believed this was just her way of dealing with her own childhood trauma. If she could just smile hard enough, 
everything would magically become okay. Or if she just smiled convincingly enough, no one would know the truth. Denial. Even as a child, I could look in my mother's eyes and see her smile did not reach there. It did not come from her heart. It was smoke and mirrors. And I was alone with a parent who had no knowledge of how to love anyone, especially herself. Because my mother's childhood family was often filled with anger and rage, my mother chose to have her children several years apart so we would not fight with each other. Well, it's true we did not fight, we did not connect either. Anger was not allowed in our house. If my parents started to have a disagreement, they would scurry off to their bedroom and talk quietly so I could not hear. It was much later in life I learned that anger and rage are not the same bad, bundled emotion. That expressing anger, indeed expressing my feelings, whatever they may be, is my right and part of healthy communication. I grew up in a household where the best I could do to try to make my feelings known would be to indirectly hint at them and hope the other person would pick up on it. When I became angry with my ex-husband, I would go into the kitchen and start scrubbing the walls. He might, if he chose, ask me, what have I done? To which I would reply, nothing, in a tone clearly stating I was angry. But it was up to my husband, if he was inclined, to figure out why I was upset. I had communicated all the information I could by scrubbing the walls. It was not until much later in life I learned how to constructively disagree, compromise, and set boundaries. My grades were better than average in school. I never got in trouble. But at some point, I stopped smiling. I didn't feel like it. Honestly, I had never felt like it. I just had to in order to get my mother's very conditional love. I stopped caring about getting that elusive affection, which felt like such a lie. I was going through the motions of life without really living. One time my best friend in school told me one of her jobs was to field a question from other kids, does Deb hate me? Her answer would be, no, she just looks at everyone that way. Adults would tell me to smile, and I would say nothing, but I was done with smiling on command. I rarely saw my father smile. He seemed to hate his work. He disliked being married to my mother. He took no pleasure in being a father. Yet, he kept working the same job and stayed married to the same woman. He was going through the motions of life without really living. Only his death when I was 15 brought about change in his life. My father did not want me. He was very open about that fact. He did not really see me. He took no fatherly responsibility for me. He did not hug me. I don't remember ever hearing him say that he loved me. Yet, he was a daily presence in our house. So, as children do, I assumed there was something wrong, something unlovable about me. It was my fault. I began to wander down the path of self-loathing. I learned to escape my life and my own thoughts. Television, books, fantasy, anything that would keep me from having to be present with and feel my feelings of worthlessness. The older I got, the better I became at escape and distraction. Growing up, my friends all came from damaged families, suicide, alcoholism, and workaholism. Our shared, uncomfortable reality bound us together, but we had been trained in the no-talk rule. Don't talk, 
don't trust, don't feel. This is a form of denial. We'd also all learned to pretend everything was okay, so we weren't able to talk about our feelings, about what was happening in our dysfunctional homes. My best friend throughout school from sixth grade on told me her father had died of a heart attack, which is what her mother told her to say. I was an adult when I learned her father had killed himself. Both of my grandfathers were very conservative Christian ministers. As children, my parents grew up in repressive homes where God was a weapon, where shame, guilt, and sin replaced love, acceptance, and tolerance. It twisted my parents emotionally in different ways. My father became emotionally shut down and seemingly unable to connect with another human being. My mother desperately pretended to be happy and loving, hoping the illusion would become a reality. When I was younger, what I could not understand about my father is that he could not love me because he did not know what love was. I don't believe he felt love and caring from his parents. My father was on the basketball team in high school. He would go to practice after school, then go home to a beating from his father for having played a game, which would take his attention from God. My grandmother did her chores, then sat and read the Bible. She was unavailable to her children. How could my father have learned the warmth and pleasure of genuine love? As a child, I did not experience physical abuse, sexual abuse, hunger, or any other overt signs of child abuse. What was present was not the problem. What was missing was the issue. I did not feel loved. I did not feel safe that a parent would be there to protect me. I did not know the comfort and joy of loving arms holding me. I did not feel worthy of being loved. I suffered invisible emotional damage. So I walked out into the world as an adult with no map, no compass, no knowledge of what true, mutually supportive love looked like, what my feelings felt like, how to constructively express my anger and set boundaries, or who I was and what I wanted in life since I had been raised to focus on making others happy rather than myself. I had been raised to polish and focus on my shell or false self, that fiction which became my unreality. Since my false self was all I knew, I cared for it as if it were of value, as if it were me. I sought value and praise from others based on external things, like physical attributes, material possessions, money, the ability to arouse others sexually. But those were just temporary hits of self-worth I received from others. I had to find recovery to begin to realize I had the capacity to find an inner self who had innate, unchangeable value, not based on the car I drove or how attractive I might have looked. I believe teaching a child to focus on creating a false self is a form of child abuse, even though the parents may have just been passing down what they had learned themselves. I had one therapist tell me my mother was not that bad, that she had seen children sold sexually for drugs or locked in cages. I understand her point. Yet I wonder if what is shared by all of us coming from a childhood of pain is this fundamental feeling of being unloved and unlovable. You can have different experiences and degrees of abandonment, but the source and foundation of that pain is still the same for all of us. 
it is shared by all of us. At age 19, I married. Greg was controlling and jealous. I thought his jealousy was a sign of love. His controlling nature meant he saw me where my father never did. He was also a very abusive alcoholic. He terrorized me, beat me, belittled me, shamed me, and I stayed for more. Once in a drunken rage, he grabbed me from behind, held a hunting knife to my throat, and whispered in my ear he was going to cut me from ear to ear and watch me bleed all over the carpet. I truly thought I was going to die. When I did not, I slept in the same bed with him that night and remained with him for several more years. At the time, I thought love held me there, but it was addiction and codependence. He validated my own self-loathing. He took over where my father had left off. Focusing on his needs and what might make him happy was a fantastic, unending distraction for me for having to look at my own self and my own feelings. The chronic fear and anxiety I felt with him kept me high, a biochemical high, similar to the fear and anxiety I had felt as an unloved and unsafe child. He gave me someone to try to rescue and fix, even though fixing him was not in my power. It was only within his grasp. Being with him allowed me to play the victim in my own mind. Poor, long-suffering me, who had to suffer like this for love. And he allowed me to continue to be small, to have no needs, to cater to his wishes, since I had none, to expend energy trying not to make him angry, when nothing can stop him from becoming angry except him. I stayed with him for 14 very long, difficult years. After I left my abusive ex, I started dating. I told one guy some of my experiences with my ex-husband. He was shocked and asked me why I'd stayed. Surprisingly, I had not really asked myself that question. I was silent for a minute, then responded, I guess I was stupid because I could not come up with a better answer. That opened a rift in me. I really began to hate my stupid self who had tolerated so much abuse. It was like throwing gasoline on the fire of my own self-hatred. When I looked in the mirror, I could see her face. The hatred of myself, born as a small child, grew and flourished. I started therapy. At that point, it was a mystery to me why I'd stayed in that relationship so long. I thought my problems started when I got married, but my therapist assured me they started in my family of origin. Because I had not been beaten, my parents were not alcoholics or sexually abusive, I did not think I came from a dysfunctional family. I thought I came from a fairly normal family, and the families presented on TV shows I watched were all fantasy. No one was really happy. My lack of emotional connection to others felt so normal. Through initial therapy, I learned to hate my mother. She taught me to suppress my feelings, to present a fake happy facade, to tolerate a loveless marriage, to be a good girl and put other people's feelings and needs before my own, to rescue and be codependent. She chose to marry a man who did not want children, so set me up to be unloved by my own father. It was all her fault. That anger with my mother festered and grew over the next 25 years. 
It became a living, stinking mass I carried with me and could not seem to put down. I continued therapy off and on for all those years, but was unwilling to stop blaming my mother for my problems. I had two other long-term romantic relationships in my life. Neither was as horrific as my first marriage, but they were still very dysfunctional. I did not get better at choosing men. I still was drawn to damage and trauma. Now I just happened to choose men who were victims in life, not persecutors. Life happened to them in various horrible ways, and they were miserable. They wallowed in their pain, but they felt powerless or unmotivated to change their lives. They seemed to want to stay in a place of misery and victimhood. I drifted through life with them, alternately trying to rescue them, then becoming angry and bitter, and belittling them for their helplessness. I had learned new steps on the drama triangle. But again, I did not have the power to make changes in their lives. When my last romantic relationship ended, I was 47 years old. I knew I was done with love. It just hurt too much. I was not good at it or lucky at it or whatever the issue was. I had learned to isolate as a child because it felt safer. safer. And I continued to isolate even in relationships with others, but now I moved into a hardcore form of isolation. I lived alone. All the curtains in my house remained closed for years at a time. I did not talk to people at work except for what was necessary to get my job done. I had no friends except those I made online gaming. I had long ago separated from my family. I was bitter, angry, and alone. Yet it all felt very normal and natural. When 9-11 happened, I felt nothing. No shock or sense of loss over the deaths. I was surprised people I worked with were crying and upset. I began to realize there might be something wrong with me. In my adult life, I honed my skills at distracting myself, starting with my old habits of television, books, and fantasy. I added food, workaholism, compulsive computer gaming, dysfunctional dramatic relationships, and shutting down emotionally. Some of these distractions moved into full-fledged addictions. While I have used alcohol to wind down and forget temporarily, I am not an alcoholic. My addictions have primarily been process-oriented, inner drugstore addictions. My body's biochemical response to feeling fear, anxiety, resentment, shame, or anger, to name a few. I lived a childhood full of anxiety, fear, and shame because I did not feel safe, loved, or worthy of love. And I chased those chemicals into my abusive marriage. Once I left my ex-husband, I became a workaholic. I chased the chronic stress high from my marriage into working 12-hour days on salary, often working weekends. I took only one week of vacation in seven years. After I burned out at work, I started addictively playing online computer games. For 13 years, I gamed, slept, and worked. I got high on adrenaline and dopamine. I escaped from real life, slipping into an avatar, and leaving my real life baggage behind temporarily. Then I found 12-step recovery and was able to begin the process of stepping away from my various addictions and distractions. 
I've worked with nine therapists in my life. All of them have been helpful in some way. But the greatest gift I got from a therapist is when she suggested I go to an Al-Anon meeting. I was sure a 12-step program would not help me, so I went to one to prove it would not work. At that point, I had not had an active alcoholic in my life for many years, so I chose to go to ACA, Adult Children of Alcoholics and Dysfunctional Families, instead. This was a 12-step program to help getting over being raised in a dysfunctional household. I don't believe in God, so working a 12-step program was very challenging for me. But I persevered because in a short time of attending meetings, I could already see the potential benefit. I had to learn to modify the program to fit my needs. Take what you want and leave the rest. I am not interested in giving up my life and will to a spiritual authority figure. As a woman, I have been giving up my power to others for most of my life. It is my desire now to be the loving parent, authority figure in my own life and to make healthier decisions, not choices based on fear or lessons learned from damage and dysfunctional family members. I have made a 12-step program work for me by making my recovery my priority. I was not willing to let a few difficulties turn me away from potential healing. I was no longer willing to play the helpless victim in my life. Through ACA, I learned to forgive. First to forgive myself for all the horrible choices I had made in life. Then to forgive my parents because they had terrible childhoods as well. They were raised in dysfunction. My parents did not choose their lives and resources were not available for them to become aware and make changes. Over time, I have learned that many recovery steps are many layered. I used to think forgiveness would be a one-step thing, like turning on a light switch. But now I see it as a process. I began with forgiveness on an intellectual level, understanding my parents had suffered abuse as children too. Now I work emotional layers of forgiveness and acceptance of what happened. I have been able to release the anger I had felt toward my mother and myself for so long. Dropping that burden was a huge relief for me. The negative emotion of anger not only held me in one place, unable to make progress, it poisoned my body with the biochemical release associated with that emotion. I was truly harming myself by being unwilling to forgive. I've been able to feel compassion for my parents and for myself even compassion for my abusive ex-husband, who was the hero child of two alcoholics, for we were all victims of our childhoods. In ACA, I joined a step group, which was made up of 13 strangers who would meet each week to go through the steps of recovery outlined in an ACA workbook. I joined expecting to never get close to those people, but over several years, I learned to become vulnerable, to talk about what happened to me, those things I had kept hidden even from myself, and to form real friendships. Learning to talk about my life with trusted people allowed me to heal the wounds from my childhood. I'm learning to get in touch with my feelings. I'm also learning to let go of the chronic tension I have been holding in my neck, back, and shoulders. A few years ago, at age 60, I had an epiphany. I had always known on some level I hated my job. I had told myself I was trapped, as I could not make the same money in another job. 
Now I realize staying in a job I hated was just another way of treating myself with self-loathing. That I did not deserve to be happy. Then it hit me that I had learned that from my father. The path of hating life, work, relationships, but not changing them for the better. To stay stuck in misery. It's its own kind of addiction. Although I was concerned I might not have enough money to retire, I chose to take the risk. I sold my house in the suburbs and bought a less expensive house in the country, right on a beautiful river. I cut back my expenses. I retired and started focusing on letting go of a lifetime of chronic, self-induced stress. I began to focus more on the self-love and happiness parts of recovery. I have found it is not easy to change the patterns of a lifetime, but I am making progress, and progress is success. ACA recovery has been the most difficult thing I have ever done. It has also been the most rewarding. Recovery for me is not a linear process with a clear endpoint. It is not like building a house where you can calculate percentage of completion at any point. It seems more like a multidimensional jigsaw puzzle, which never runs out of pieces to place. There are always different areas to work and improve. There is progress, yet the puzzle is never complete. There are times I still struggle emotionally. I can fall back into the darkness. But I know if I'm willing to do some work and not just drift in the familiar comfort of the pain, I can work back to a place with light again. The recovery process brings clarity and healing, yet the work may never be done. I've learned to accept this and to try to enjoy the journey, to find hope in the process, to take comfort in the knowledge I will continue to feel better and better over time, perhaps with no end to the possible improvements. I like the open-ended vision of recovery better than the finite one. Welcome back. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you just heard, please go support us by rating and subscribing us. Every little bit of support and love really helps keep this podcast going and moving in a direction that supports both you and I. So please just take a little second, a little minute to rate and subscribe. It really means a lot. If you'd like to hear more about Deb's story, you can always go to our website at the survivorstorypodcast.com. And that's the survivorstorypodcast.com. And there you can find a little bit more about Deb's story, different things she recommends. Um, We also have a bunch of journal articles and exercises that just might help you improve different parts of your mental and emotional well-being. So there's a lot of information to go check out. We're releasing journal articles every week. We released a new episode every two weeks. So there's just a lot more information and ways to dive in. Also, if you think, hey, I might be a good guest, I have a good story that I might like to share, you can always go to our website and fill out the form to possibly be a guest on our uh, show. We're always looking for new guests and we'd love to have you on. Um, So once again, thank you for being here, for listening, and we'll just move right into the Q&A. So yes, thank you very much for sharing your story. Um, I'm very grateful for you to be here, as I mentioned earlier. 
It's my great pleasure to be here. Um, I'm honored that you asked me. Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons I, I really thought you would be great on the podcast is that you capture something that I think is almost different than most people is really like capturing just this kind of like gray area abuse where it doesn't necessarily always like be defined as like physically abusive. Mm -hmm. um, it's like more like emotional abuse, yes. um, but it's also not defined as like loving either. And it's this middle area that is quite often overlooked in parenting. And I'm wondering at what time in your life did you kind of realize that, okay, this stuff wasn't okay? It's, um, I think at the point where it really became evident to me and I could actually start to drop my denial around it was when I started therapy in my mid-30s. And a therapist, you know, she started, um, I, I thought that I would start talking about my ex-husband, because that's why I went. Hmm. And she said, no, 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 you would not have stayed in a relationship like that without ha having suffered previous damage. So she started asking me these probing questions about my family and relationships between people and my father and my relationship with my father. And it's like, I had um, I had little hints that there were problems when I was a kid, um, but you know, like I knew my dad wasn't like Ward Cleaver and Leave It to Beaver. Uh -huh. You know, I I would never have gone to him with a problem. Uh, my mother traveled a lot for work, and so I was just afraid of him. Hmm. Um, so I I knew that my family was different than the families on TV, but. You know, I, I thought that I rationalized by saying, well, that, that's just fantasy anyway. Um, which, you know, I was also watching Gilligan's Island and <laughs> I Dream of Jeannie and all those other useful shows. Uh -huh. um, but, you know, there, there were there were other indicators, too. Like, I talked about my mother a little bit, but she really... Even as a child, I could understand or feel that even when she said I love you to me and hugged me, that she was more like an actress in a role. Hmm. It didn't feel genuine. But as a child, I didn't feel safe enough to really explore that. I had to kind of push it away and deny it and believe that I was yeah. loved. Yeah. Yeah. So there's in a sense, this kind of trail of indicators. Yes. But there is never, was never that big, like, realization until you came into your 30s. Um, and yes. we're almost um, probably at a better place to hold. How to hold it, to be able to articulate it. Yeah. Um, I also had an interesting, uh, and actually in, in preparing for this, I had an interesting realization that without having been in the uh, abusive uh, relationship that I was, I might not have ever sought therapy. You know, and I might have just gone through the rest of my life partially wounded in bad relationships and never understanding why. Mm -hmm. um, so in a way, I am grateful to my ex-husband <laughs> for, for bringing me here. I wouldn't have been here otherwise. Yeah, I mean, I, and I think that that happens with a lot of people is that there's not these, like, sometimes these big events that draw them into, like, really getting help or looking at, like, why they 
were drawn into such whether abusive different traumatic different things um and that they live their life kind of whether numbed out or just in bad relationships and or you know just going and being like i'm depressed and i can't find the reason for my like depression in a sense and just you know a lot of times getting medication to just try to find some relief um but never really looking at kind of this gray area yeah right this stuff that's really hard to define that and i think also part of it is you talked about how um very easily we get taught to be a false self and Mm -hmm. some of that's just through role modeling right that we see our we see our mom fake smiling Mm -hmm. at a bunch of things and we learn that like oh how we interact in the world is to fake smile and not show our true emotions and how just this little fact can interfere with us being actually being our authentic self for the rest of our life absolutely you know yeah um and i wonder you know how can parents in your view help a child to to be more authentic whether that's their own work or um you know, something they tell their child? Um, I don't know that I really know the answer to that. Mm. I don't, you know, I've I've never had kids in my life. Um, I mean, certainly honoring, parents honoring their their kids' emotions and reflecting back to them what they're feeling so they know what they're feeling. Mm -hmm. What do you think would have helped you from your parents? It would have helped me tremendously if they had known how to love. Hmm. You know, I read an article once where, I mean, I'm older. My parents um, were older when I was born. So when at the point where they chose to be parents, it was to be a model parent, all you had to do was provide food, shelter, clothes, and a fear of God, and you were done, <laughs> you know. So, I, you know, we've come a long way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I actually, I think that's a very interesting point. We are actually like, I think in the midst of making big changes mm-hmm. in this, that like historically we have just been taught to be almost false selves, you yes. know, um, yeah. that it's just this very historical thing. And it's only now that we're kind of shaking this up and, you know, more and more people are either going to therapy or seeking help or seeking more, uh, resources to kind of come back to, um, their self and and honoring that and honoring that absolutely um so another part that hit me um during your story was one noticing kind of like event after event after event um and those were you know very difficult and hard things but really what got me was how after all of that and going through your relationship with your ex-husband how you started beating yourself up for mm-hmm, that and mm-hmm. I, that's just like it was almost like the tail end and I think what hit me so hard was that I think I relate to that because I do that mm-hmm. so we can go through all this stuff and then just still continue to beat ourselves up the same way we were getting beaten up yes when did you start changing that uh you know I think it's something that I didn't attack head on necessarily. I think it's a byproduct of doing the work. Hmm. Um, just primarily learning to forgive myself. 
and learning that uh, I learned this from my parents who were damaged themselves. You know, there's there's no villain here. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I, I like also like the aspect of you talking about there's no villain. Um, and I know a lot of times we, you start bringing up parents and people think you're like just immediately blaming or putting this. And I just want to ask like how, how important was getting your history straight and being able to move forward? I think it was very important. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And some of that was sorting through the denial around it, you know, the perfect family and we weren't dysfunctional and, you know, being able to clear that brush away mm-hmm. and go, oh yeah, there were problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be able to talk about it because, you know, part, like the concept of don't talk, don't trust, don't feel. It's that we don't, if we can't talk about it, our experiences, then we don't have the right to our feelings about it. And if we don't have the right to our feelings about it, then it didn't happen. So talking about it, um, initially when I talked about my life, I did it without emotion. I was like a newscaster Hmm. telling my story. And over retellings, over time, the emotion began to come up with it. And that really helped me heal to be able to honor that, the feelings behind it. Because part of the problem is that we, we learn to stuff our emotions. We, you know, we can't feel this. And in order to be a living, thriving human being, we are emotional creatures. <laughs> you know, and, and one therapist told me, if you, if you block one emotion like anger, you're putting a thick, heavy blanket on all emotions. Hmm. And I think that's also a piece that like anger doesn't necessarily mean blame. Right. Um, and I also, I mean, I don't know how you would feel about this, but um, I sometimes say like that there is a part of the process where blame is present. Mm-hmm. Like you almost have to work through a little blame to get start moving forward in it. I absolutely agree. I think, um, you know, I've talked to people who are just starting and they're and they're upset that they're, they're angry. Anger is coming up toward their parents. Mm-hmm. And I'll say that's OK. That is perfectly all right. We have to walk through the anger to be able to find forgiveness. Yeah, I believe. Yeah, yeah. And I also like that you said forgiveness is a process Mm -hmm. because there's so many times that I go through my process and I'm like, oh damn, anger is here again. Yeah. Um, Haven't I not forgiven this? But I also know there's times, you know, through my recovery that I have been like, oh, I'm finding forgiveness around this, Mm -hmm. and so I, I almost. When people say that they've like completely forgiven or something, I almost start thinking there's something wrong with me because I go through these layers and I go through this process. And so it's very relieving to hear that um, in your experience as well, that forgiveness is a process Mm -hmm. and it's almost, you know, and it's just another reminder, okay, don't beat myself up for either not being here yet or just still being in the process. Right. You know, that that stuff continues. One thing I'm going through now is... um you know, I found forgiveness for myself and for my parents and for my ex-husband. But I can still feel resentment that my childhood was shitty, mm-hmm. you know. So there's no villain, but there's still resentment. Yeah. And now I'm working on the process of acceptance, hmm. you know, saying even this level of resentment doesn't benefit me. It's happened. 
Mm-hmm. I can't change that, you know. Yeah. So I'm working on just letting that go as well. And the work continues. The work continues. <laughs> um, you talked about the familiar comfort of pain and addiction to excitement. We'll see if we can bring any uh, clarity around this 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 issue, this thing. Uh-huh. Um, but how I like I like to kind of explain it and sometimes look at it. And I wonder what you think you know, kind of talk about process addiction. So how either like emotions or mental states, different things like that can be as, can be an addiction mm-hmm. in itself. So how um, anxiety or being nervous or being a victim are almost places of, um, or are places of addiction. I don't want to say almost. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, th- I think the way that I explain it is a lot of times when we think of substances that are addictive, We think of external substances like alcohol, cigarettes, whatever, but we forget that our bodies are pharmaceutical manufacturing Hmm. machines. Yes. We, you know, I mean, we even create a morphine-like substance. Hmm. Um, So, and I believe we can become addicted to those substances without, and, and the thing is, you know, like to get alcohol, we have to go out and acquire it and put it to our lips. But the inner drug store is accessible 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and it can happen on a very subconscious level. Mm-hmm. So we're not aware that we're dosing ourselves. And if we come from dysfunctional families, we grow up sometimes even, you know, get our first exposure in utero if our mother's stressed out. Um, so we're constantly hit with fear. Hmm. and anxiety and a lack of love and, you know, all this stuff. And it becomes addictive. It can become addictive and we can seek it out subconsciously. Um, And it goes a lot of different directions. Like even me, um, like you know that I've tried uh, a couple of different antidepressants and, Mm -hmm. and gave up on it. I was hoping that it would give me some sort of chemical change that would that would bring me out and i've come to realize that it's more like this this inner drugstore addiction i like that feeling of being depressed and i'm seeking it out Mm. so you know i'm still working on this one but um i know that gratitude and compassion, those are like things that can pull me away from that depressive state. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of retraining the brain, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, I I can very much identify with uh, the addiction to depression mm-hmm. and find myself like just in mood states quite mm-hmm. quite back there just because it's this like... It's comfortable. It's, it's comfortable. It, it like almost is like, oh, I can just lay down and watch a movie and like don't have to almost like go out and entertain the world that it's just like this comfortable feeling that feels safe. And, um, and it's just the state that I like, I don't know. It's, it's hard to explain. And and if you think of it as a disease, um, then you can actually play the victim. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, here I am. This is, this is what life is. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's the, the other, hard part about that is um you know with these emotions you can start almost blaming it on outside situations and not necessarily looking how you are 
still creating this depressive aspect in yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not to like have anyone going back and blaming themselves for being right. depressed. Yes. Uh, that's not what we're getting at. But, um, and I, I think really when it comes up is when you start looking at your life and saying like, oh, everything in my life is good. And I'm still kind of choosing to be depressed in a sense. Yeah. Or like, and, and that's what it, it comes up with me with anxiety. I'll look at like everything that's going great in my life, but then still be like anxious. And I'll be like, oh, there's really no reason for me to be anxious except for that it's like this feeling that gets like adrenaline and stuff mm-hmm. going for me. Yeah. I think I think adrenaline might be like one of the best ways to explain about how people are adrenaline seekers. Yes. And they're addicted to their their body, their brain creating this adrenaline to basically get high off of. And there is this internal drugstore. Mm-hmm. Um and what's very difficult is like they're very it's very hard to identify yes. and choose what's what's this and what's that especially if it's it's been there all along yeah your whole life your whole life yeah um, and i think you know we can even widen the the view a little bit and look at you know society today that isn't there a lot of fear mm-hmm. isn't there a lot of you know yeah. you look at politics you look at well and the news is just run on this idea of in her drugstore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, people watch cable news to get high. Uh-huh. Huh. I live a life that's quite busy. And, like, there's a part of me that wants to just move to Hawaii, live on a farm, just do farming, and just have a very chill, relaxed life. And then there's another part of me that wants a life that's a little bit more exciting mm-hmm. on this. And I wonder if this is just the inner drugstore part or um, what do you, how have you figured out what's inner drugstore and what's maybe just a a normal emotion in a sense? Um, I I think it's important to look first at everything falls on a continuum between healthy Mm -hmm. and unhealthy. It's not, it's not one thing or the other. So there's a whole range of um, possibilities. Um, I find that I, I actually need to stop and physically figure out what's going on in my body. Hmm. Is my heart racing? Um, you know, am I getting jacked up on adrenaline? Hmm. And if I can identify that, then I need to, if I want to, back off. And, you know, like I've gone through this thing where, like like the idea of moving to Hawaii and farming. <laughs> you know, you think, oh, this is idyllic and I can get away from my inner drugstore. Okay, I've moved out into the country by a beautiful river. And yet I still struggle, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. I've, uh, for the past 20 years, I've been off, off and on online computer gamer, which is a huge adrenaline rush. Yeah. And, uh, I just recently went back to it during the winter and figured out, you know, I was, I was debating back and forth between, oh, this is fun. I need to have fun in my life. And then finally, like six weeks ago, I realized like the the very first thought that came through my brain every time I woke up in the morning was like, oh, I have to boot up all four of my com- gaming computers so I can start playing. Mm-hmm. And I'd start negotiating with myself of, oh, well, I'll do something good in the house for an hour and then I'll game for the rest of the day until I go to sleep. And finally I had to go, okay, you know what? This is, this is an addiction. This mm-hmm. is, I'm getting high off of this and I need to step away 
because it's also pulling me away from being in my own body, which mm. is what I'm working on right now. Mm. And I think, I think a piece of it is also identifying kind of like <clears throat> what's your priority or what's your like kind of like bottom line in it, right? Like, because I think every individual is different. Mm-hmm. Um, some people, I think, might be okay with just doing that and even just getting a little high in their body. Like, mm-hmm. it's not causing enough trouble to, Absolutely. to um, you know, make a change. And there's no, you know, it's it's up to the person's, like, almost perception of what they want um, to, you know, if they want to make that change or not, if it's causing enough interference in their life with, with almost, like, how they want to be. Yes. In a sense. And it sounds like for you, staying in touch with your body and doing this process has been so valuable that it means giving up on certain addictions. It does. It unfortunately. does. You know, and, and I'm also aware that it's also an escape for me. You know, uh-huh. I mean, it, it, it meets various yeah. negative needs. Yeah. Um, I can't play games anymore, even though, like, I know friends who operate in games just like I did. Mm-hmm. And it's working for their life. Yes. You know, it yeah. just wasn't working for mine. So I have to step away from it. Yes. Um, so feel free to play your games out there. <laughs> 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 We're not trying to stop your fun. No, no. <laughs> um, so what do you, I don't know, look forward in the future? Do you even think of a future or do you just take it day by day? I tend to take it day by day. You know, it's funny. I went through life without goals. Hmm. Like, from the from my time in my 20s, my goal was to retire. Hmm. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> and I finally got there. So it's like, okay, what do I want to do now? And I guess my goal is to continue to get better within myself, to love myself. Hmm. Um, but I'm not, it's not on a time clock or anything. Yeah. It's, it's just, yeah, I'm slowly working on this and I'm okay with that. Cool. Um, what does your ideal day look like? Oh, I, um, I journal, I write, I sit by the river, I pet my cat, (laughs) I garden. Um, it's, it's nice to not have to do anything. Yeah. Sounds nice. It is nice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, who is someone who has truly inspired you or you feel grateful for in your life or helped you along there? That is easy. Um, that would be my friend Saska, mm. who was in my first step group, and she is um, an amazing human being. And I was in a really bad place when I first came into ACA, and she was able to play the first loving parent that I had ever had, mm. in a way, um, to show me unconditional love, to listen to me and reflect back to what I was feeling so I could identify my emotions. I mean, she's she's a nanny. She was a nanny professionally. So <laughs> she brought these skills. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, and it's it's very possible I wouldn't have stayed in recovery without her. Mm. I, I have those people in my life too. There's just, they were just the right people along yes. the way. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know how to explain it, but... <laughs> The right people along the way. So we have three questions that we ask everybody before or at, at the end of the, the show. Um, what are you up to now? Um, I'm, I'm focusing on relaxing. I'm focusing on self-love. Hmm. Um, 
I actually just started seeing another therapist and, and the main goal is to get in my body, mm. which, um, I struggle with. I still struggle with. Yeah. Um, what book would you recommend? It could be a fiction book. It could be a self-help book. What books, um, do you, yeah. The book, the books that really resonated with me recovery wise, um, one is When the Body Says No by Gabor Mate, mm. MD. And the other is When the, the Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. The Body Says No and The Body Keeps the Score. When the Body Says No. When the Body Says No. Beautiful. I, I, uh, Exploring the Stress Disease Connection is what it's called. Huh. I know Gabor Mate has also done a lot of, I don't know if you'd necessarily label it as addiction to excitement. Um, but has done a lot of look at other types of addictions. He certainly, yeah, he certainly gets into that. He talks about his addiction to buying CDs, <laughs> CDs, which yes. is certainly, you know, addiction to excitement. Uh-huh, you exactly. Um, he has a lot of good stuff. So I, I don't know. I haven't dove into that book, but I've been meaning to. Um, I've read a lot of his other book, um, with the hungry ghost. Ghosts, yeah. yeah. Um, this is actually more about the connection between stress and disease in the body. That is interesting. So I'll definitely check that out. And that'll definitely be um, on the website to check out. Um, and then the last question is, what would you tell someone who is experiencing similar hardships? That um, radical change is possible. To... Um, Seek help. Try therapy. If you don't like the first therapist, try another one. If you don't like that one, try another one. If it seems appropriate, you can try ACA meetings. Uh, you can go to adultchildren.org and find uh, a meeting close to you, hopefully. If not, there are online meetings. There are online meetings uh, at intherooms.com. Um, I don't, I don't know that I haven't done many online meetings. I don't know if they're as good as, uh, in-person meetings, but there's something if you don't have that opportunity, um, make your health and well-being a priority in your life and that you do have the power to make change. Hmm. Well, thank you very much. I'm very glad to have you and to have done this. <laughs> Me too. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for our first story to listening to Deb share her experience, strength, and hope. Again, check out our website. If you want more information on Deb's story, you can check out the books that she recommends. So check out the plethora of journal articles that we have available to you. Um, again, we release an episode every two weeks and a journal article every week. So keep in touch. You can also keep in touch with us on Instagram at the Survivor Story and Facebook at the Survivor Story Podcast. Both of those places you can get sneak peeks of future episodes and connect in with our guests and this storytelling community. And lastly, if you want to support us and send us a little love, please rate and subscribe. That's probably the biggest thing you can do. Also, tell someone about this podcast. Be like, hey, I think this story might be really great for you. It's with your support that we can keep this storytelling movement moving. So again, thank you very much. 
You can check out Caitlin's story next, and I hope you have an amazing day.